Welcome to Maps and Meta-Analysis. Looking at California cities. Hi, I'm Darvesh Gorhit. And I'm Justin Hirsch. And this is Facts and Folsom. A Meta-Analysis. Welcome back to uh, Maps and Meta-Analysis and our ongoing coverage of the city of Folsom. Um, so this podcast, we're going to be talking about another city council meeting. Um, and really quick, I'm going to share my screen and we're going to go through the agenda and then Darvesh will introduce the first presentation. So um, here's the agenda. Um, the first presentation, um, one that we'll be spending a lot of time talking about, was presented on Folsom's water situation, um, including some of the history of the city's water rights, existing contracts, needed supplies, and projected demands for current and future water use. Um, your typical consent calendar, which there wasn't a whole lot going on that we'll be discussing in this podcast. Um, public hearing, which was actually really quick for these two items, um, one on approving and confirming a report of delinquent utility charges and requesting that the county collects the charges on the tax roll, I believe it was uh, property tax. And then the other item was another resolution approving an engineer's report um, for the landscaping lighting districts, which um, like we could skip that in coverage and basically just say there was no change from the previous time that this was brought up. Um, a lot of the uh, meeting itself was also composed of um, so an item of new business, which was the consideration of an establishment of community priorities advisory committee and direction to the city staff, which um, we'll get to the updates in the podcast. Um, and then Darvesh, you can go ahead and bring us to the presentation. Cool. Um, actually, here, let, let's like talk about the stuff first. And then yeah. um, if we need to bring something up, then we'll like just pull up the relevant slide. Okay, sounds good. So yeah, I, I took some notes. I, I thought it was a very interesting meeting. Uh, I definitely learned a lot about, uh, you know, actually, well, okay, now I'm I'm looking at my notes and I'm like, okay, I should probably just uh, share my screen anyway. So um, yeah, let's do this. So this was kind of the outline. Uh, so basically talking about where the water supply comes from, which is like interesting in and of itself, uh, the Folsom Reservoir, um, kind of who's in charge of what, what are its obligations, you know, which obligations kind of take priority. Uh, how water rights work, um, water usage. So for example, they talked about like how uh, priority is calculated and it has to do with like kind of the uh, precedence of the water contract. So kind of the older your water contract, like the more your rights to that water, which is, I don't know, it seems like it could be problematic going forward. Um, and then, you know, just some stats on Folsom's water use in particular, um, the challenges, you know, what, what kind of stuff is being done and like what are some kind of actions in the immediate future that are going to be taken. Um, so, sorry, I'm like, uh, I have the video pulled up, so I'm just going to kind of like scrub through the video to see. Uh, so this is just a view of the dam, that nothing really uh, there. Um, one thing that was interesting was that the Folsom Dam is actually operated by the Bureau of Reclamation, which is a federal entity. So in essence, like Folsom has very little control on how the dam operates and what is actually done. So for example, they don't control like when water is released or they don't control like uh for example like any kind of like improvement projects I, I mean we have like some say in like the final step but the vast majority of it is handled by like the uh, the federal government and then the uh Folsom Reservoir is sort of part of the Central Valley project so essentially there's like Oroville and a bunch of different dams and reservoirs and they all sort of work in conjunction to provide water to the neighboring area and this just lists like some of the um some attributes. So flood control is actually primary because like Folsom is a floodplain. So without the mm -hmm. dam, like Folsom might flood due to rainfall. Um, and then environmental flows. So basically like if there's any uh, kind of river 
life that depends on a certain rate of water or like a certain level, then we have to regulate that. Also, uh, salinity in the delta can be affected seasonally or due to like droughts and things like that. So if there's like too much salt water that goes into the delta, that can destroy a lot of, um, you know, very delicate species and things like that. And the other water uses is basically like what you and I use water for. So this is like like literally the last priority. Um, so talk about this for a while. Oh, I thought this was kind of interesting. So this shows like the the different levels. So this is like absolute like max like you know you, you literally can't fit any more water than this. But realistically, there's a bit of a buffer left. Um, and then below this level, you basically have to like pump the water for emergency operations. Um, I think they noted that they have tested the equipment uh, quite recently. So they tested it in 2015 and 2020, but they never actually had to use it for like day-to-day -day operations. Um, Unfortunately, that, right now, as you can see in the photos, like the reservoir is quite high. So it's not something that we're necessarily going to be concerned with in the immediate future. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, I think the, the idea that they were saying was like, oh, let's, um, you know, make sure all this stuff works in case like when, mm -hmm. when we have to use it, like it shouldn't be broken. Uh, and then there's a water treatment facility. Uh, one interesting note is that the Folsom Prison has its own water contract and water treatment facility. So that's like not counted in any of this, uh, which I thought was kind of an interesting note. Um, yeah, and th this slide was was pretty important. So essentially there, there's kind of like a bifurcation in the water rights. There's all the stuff pre-1914. So 1851 is when California became a state. So like there's nothing before that. Um, but I guess in after 1914, there's like a different set of uh, water contracts that were negotiated. So there's this kind of big bucket of like, and so AF stands for acre feet. So imagine like an acre of land and then you filled the water up to one feet. It, it, it's some weird like imperial nonsense that uh, <laughs> Americans still use, but whatever. Um, I, I mean, suffice to say, there's a lot of water. Um, so yeah. Do we know how many uh, how many gallons are in an acre feet? Uh, no, actually, let me um, just to give some like context for Lister because I, I I also like similarly hearing this in the presentation was like acre feet. You know, it's very interesting. Um, you know, so one per... acre foot is uh three hundred twenty five thousand eight hundred fifty one oh, gallons. That's a lot. Okay, wow, yeah. yeah, a lot of water. So twenty two thousand acre feet, lot of water. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if uh, if there's a a metric on like you know how many like swimming pools. Like I wonder how many acre feet like a swimming pool is. Um, probably like a fraction of an acre foot, actually, now that I think about it. So this is like a ton of water. Um, and then I forget what M and I, M, yeah, M and I stands for. Uh, maybe this is like essentially in an emergency, like what, um, like what you would use if you're in a pinch. Um, so that was kind of interesting. Um, obviously the old water contracts are much more generous, uh, whether that's good or bad is yet to be seen. Um, and then these are all the factors that kind of are part of the contract. So meaning like, where can you use the water? Uh, point of diversion is like, um, I feel like that means like dam essentially, like do you send it downstream or do you get water from stream? Um, or where, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it's just where you pull the water from. Yeah. And then uh, quantity, obviously, like that's the, the main thing that most people think of mm -hmm. uh, rate. So basically the, there is kind of like a maximum flow rate. So it, in essence, like, even though you might have a high water allocation, uh, you can't use all that water in one place. Uh, you know, you essentially wouldn't be able to use your maximum allocation if it's all concentrated in one place. So an example of this might be like, you have a, a water park in your town and that water park is obviously gonna use like a lot of water at one time. And so even if like your city has like a big allocation, if that one place cannot get like enough 
flow, then it's not going to work. Um, so when operating the dam, um, this determines essentially like how many of the spillways they're going to open, right? Like, so whether they're doing just like one of the spillways or all eight, right? Uh, I actually don't think it's that. I, I think it's more so like, um, you know, this subregion of Folsom, like how much water is flowing to them per unit of time. Gotcha. Whereas the spillway, I think like that's controlled more by like the federal government and the state for like environmental purposes. Okay. Uh, and so then we're talking more pipes then, like coming out of the. Yeah, that, that, that was my understanding at least uh, from okay. this. I believe I believe they did say um, in, in the presentation as well. There's a like a subterranean pipe that like pumps water actually underneath Folsom Prison from like the reservoir to the water treatment plant, which is like not too far away. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. exactly, exactly. Um, and then yeah, shortage provision. So basically, this is like uh, there's different levels to this. So, you know, if it's kind of like a mild issue, then you limit like how much water people can use for landscaping. Um, if it's like more serious, then it's like, you know, just purely um, residential and uh, like commercial use. But, you know, for example, like we have a Kikoman plant, like maybe they wouldn't be able to get any water, but like you could still have water in like a restaurant or something. Um, and the payment terms, I, I don't think they really went over the payment terms, but I imagine it's just like how you're going to pay, whether you're going to pay in a lump sum or you're going to pay like month over month. Um, that sort of thing. Um, and then uh, there are a couple of questions, uh, mostly just like, I guess, thanking uh, the presenter for, you know, presenting a lot of this information. Um, I don't know. I mean, did you guys have any, uh, let's see, did I write down any, oh, so, some interesting notes from the question. So I, we won't like listen to the questions themselves, uh, but they account for about eight to 10% lost due to leaks, which I thought was like quite interesting. That seemed like way higher than what I would account for, uh, but but they displayed it in a way that made it sound like, oh, this is pretty normal. And then they also said that they account for a one to 3% loss from just water metering. So meaning like the what the reading you get from the meter might be off by one to 3%. So it might be using one to 3% more water than is reported by the meter. Um, they also mentioned that just how, be due to rounding? Yeah, I think so. I think it's probably just like variance in the mm -hmm. instrumentation itself. Uh, I don't know, like, I guess I would think that if it's a variance in the instrumentation, that you would have variance that is overestimating as well as underestimating. So it all just kind of like nets mm -hmm. out in the end. Uh, but I wonder if there's something about water metering that makes it prone to systematically underestimating, even if it's only by one to 3%. Um, which I, I guess in the context of like 30,000 acre feet is still a lot of, yeah. so, you know, like, yeah, 30,000, 1% of that is 300 acre feet. And if one acre foot is like 300,000 gallons, so that's like, oh, yeah, it's just like a crazy amount of water. Mm. Millions of gallons, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. In, in like the millions, uh, maybe even like 10 million plus gallons. Um, the other thing with, that was mentioned is that uh, Folsom doesn't really have any groundwater. So we actually, this is why we depend on the reservoir so much. Um, and... Uh, Later on, they'll, they'll talk about the uh, Sacramento Regional Groundwater Bank, and so I'll, I'll kind of get to that in a bit. So let me skip ahead to, uh, yeah, they, they talk about some of the contracts. Um, actually, I didn't, uh, I wasn't, I didn't follow this as much, but uh, I don't know, Justin, do you, do you have any comments on this? I, I thought the SoCal part was a bit interesting, but. Um, I think we could really just focus on the SoCal part. Um, the only thing I'll mention before that is um, the first um, really like company stakeholder that was managing us building too much water and mining company, which um, all the way back in 1851, there really wasn't a whole lot regulating that. 
Um, so um, as you, um, for those that are watching, you can see on the slide, um, in 1951 is really where you start getting a lot more layers of contracts. And then since then, things seem to be a lot more strictly regulated. Um, so Darvesh, if um, you want to talk about the SoCal part, I think that's, I agree. I think it's a little bit more relevant and interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't really have much to say, honestly, about the SoCal part other than, um, yeah, it seems like they take a lot of water. Like it, it seems, uh, I could understand the frustration, I think, from residents saying that like, hey, we're putting in all these conservation measures, um, you know, all this like strict, you know, these sort of strict practices that really only like save water on the margins. And yet right. we're also just like sending millions and millions, you know, perhaps even like billions of gallons of water uh, to a place that, you know, it's just like an arid desert. Um, and also there seems to be, at least from my understanding, there doesn't seem to be a big appetite for desalination in Los Angeles, primarily due to like uh, somewhat understandable, but also somewhat esoteric, like uh, environmental reasons. Uh, essentially, like it's just kind of expensive and energy intensive to uh, desalinate water. But I, I get the sense that we'll have to do this kind of stuff eventually, or that if if a place is located in a desert, they should kind of be obligated to do desalination to some extent to offset the amount of water that they're pulling from other parts of the state. Particularly I, I, when you're on the coast. Yeah, and then also it's, it's just sort of like if anyone has driven on like I-5, uh, you know, from Sacramento to Southern California, you see these like big aqueducts and it's like a lot of the water is just being lost to evaporation. So mm -hmm. it, it's like they, they buy the acre feet, but like not all the acre feet that we send actually gets there. So I wonder also like how that's calculated is, is it the acre feet that they receive? And you have to account for like evaporation loss, in which case we're like literally just wasting a ton of water trying to send it to a place mm -hmm. that may or may not need it. So anyway, yeah, that's, uh, that's that. Um, I, to be honest, I, I didn't really understand this section as much. It felt like a bit in the weeds. I feel like I would have to see like the details of the contract itself. Uh, but it seemed like this was more for like informational purposes. Uh, I, don't I think know, that last bullet point is the most interesting thing to talk about for our purposes. Gotcha. Um, the Central Valley Water Project essentially is an agreement with, as Darvis talked in the beginning, like the Central Valley and water sharing rights between different areas. Um, but the key thing to note is that um, it does not take precedent um, uh, to the things that were prior. So um, everything that was in existence before this project um, is grandfathered in. So after all that's taken care of, then you can worry about the Central Valley Water Project. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so... Um, yeah, it's pretty much exactly how it sounds. And I think it's mm -hmm. probably a function of no one would sign a new contract if they get less than what they had before. Like you would just, mm -hmm. you would just like say no or like abstain because you're like, why would I agree to have a lower water allocation than I previously had? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. Let's see, so spend a bit of time on this. Um, oh yeah, oh, th this was kind of interesting. So this is like a good... Um, uh, example. So uh, does SJWD stand for like San Joaquin Water District? I think so. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then this is a Central Valley project. So for example, um, if let's say like Folsom was running low on water, uh, the areas where it says pre-1914, 
these would have uh, precedence in terms of getting water relative to the CVP areas. Um, if, if like, let's say the CVP budget was exhausted, the, the sort of pre-1914 contract would allow water to be fed to those areas. Is, is that correct, Justin? I feel like I'm, that's like think, what my yeah. understanding was. Yeah. Um, I guess one question I have for you following that is, um, it looks like the Folsom Plain area is both CVP and pre-1914. Is that like the same area it's referring to, or is there some nuance within the Folsom Plain area where it's like, oh, the east side falls under Central Valley Project, but the uh, west side falls under the pre-1914? That's a good point. I I suspect that because the two are so close together and there's no like mm -hmm. delineation, um, I think they, I think they are together. So I think essentially you mm -hmm. would like use up your CVP budget first before dipping into your pre-1914 allocation. Okay, so that particular area is very protected with its water rights because it's double covered. I think so, yeah. This is something we can we can definitely follow up on too because that's, yeah. I, I'm very interested to like know, you know, how, you know, like how does this map, like what is going on here and like how does that allocation work? If, if right, for example, uh, some of these areas are like covered under both. Um, I mean, we can, we can assume that like anything pre-1914 is like, you know, under like almost all circumstances is going to be getting the water that it has yeah. allocated just because of like the precedence it has um, in that like priority list. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would also be, I mean, but I guess now that you're saying that, Justin, because they don't have like a clear line delineation, mm -hmm. maybe, um, maybe this middle area is actually both CVP and pre-1914 as well. Yeah. Because I, I think like otherwise, like why would you list it in that area mm -hmm. so i don't know yeah this is definitely something we should follow up on and maybe even consider adding to like Folsom map i think that you definitely could uh, have a little bit more of an interactive version um yeah. for example if you can toggle cvp versus pre-1914 that yeah. would be a little bit more useful in explaining and teasing out the difference between the two yeah yeah exactly exactly so um yeah stay tuned for that i guess <laughs> I, I don't want to put a timeline on it because i uh, i will inevitably underestimated hmm. um okay so they talked about this for a bit uh oh, th this slide was like very interesting actually so hmm. um uh, despite all of the kind of water contract uh chicanery that has happened in terms of like grandfathering in old things um like Folsom's water usage I think has uh gone down quite a bit I, I think that was like the implication here so the orange line represents the population growth um and the blue line let's see it's kind of hard to tell yeah so water, actually water um, one of the questions that was posed on this slide um was you know kind of what what's contributing to like this graph right this data here mm -hmm. um because it is it's fascinating right as like Folsom's population has increased like the trend line is actually like we're using less and less water like yeah. every year um and, and the the answer that the presenter gave to that was like kind of a mixed number of uses right um one, one thing that was um top of the list uh we're kind of up there on the top of the list was like more efficient appliances right i'm talking like washers shower heads toilets um stuff like that uh more efficient like appliances um definitely cited like you know kind of be because you know Folsom has been in multiple droughts in the last like couple decades um i we definitely remember growing up with you know, those like drought warnings and stuff and like the rate surges um, on like usage if you surpass like a certain amount of water. Um, and so a lot of like, you know, consumer sentiment as well 
definitely contributed to like lower usage. Um, and I believe like a lot of commercial, commercial. Uh, I think I think he cited. And feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, guys. Like commercial uses as well. Like businesses were using less or more efficient. I know like sprinkler systems as well. Um, which is which is interesting. It's it's a this is like a really good example of like how you know we can respond to like you know climate or you know environmental stimuli mm -hmm. and like become more efficient even if like population is increasing so i, I... Oh, oh sorry. did we lose my oh, client i think so yeah sorry oh, also okay. i like accidentally uh gotcha Brother. I would guess that the only other thing I would add to that, McLean, is that I think it's also interesting, especially as Folsom is expanding to the south of 50 in the Folsom Plain area. Um, you'll notice as you drive through here, um, I remember growing up, everyone had a lawn. And now it's almost standard in, you know, lots of places in California, but especially so here, um, where people have low water usage, like bark or small patches of grass, if any. So um, it, it very much feels like the successive droughts that we've experienced in the past few decades have uh, definitely supported that notion that there's been a culture change, um, especially amongst residents and businesses, um, to contribute to that trend. I, yeah. I agree. And I want to kind of add on to that point as well, um, mm -hmm. which is um, like up, up here in like the Pacific Northwest, they're starting to in the last decade, definitely for sure, as like the climate is, in, you know, changing um, and it's getting warmer, summers are hotter. Uh, there, there definitely has been an increased look and focus on that like topic as well and i think that like cities like Folsom and you know in california like they are i think like models for success of like how you can you know like you know for, for like individual and like commercial consumption like decrease um like water consumption um it's also important to note as well for listeners that and this is a global average 70 percent of water usage is for agriculture um well so what we're looking at here is in the 30 percent. this is like the 30 percent of like fresh water consumption would fall this is only a slice of it but you know this would this would fall into that 30 percent. and so th these conversations are very very important uh, but it's just sometimes it's important to keep that context in mind as well um i would also add um i did look up the exact years of california drought um, and I think it's interesting when you take that in the context of this graph, you'll notice these are where the tips tend to be. So for example, the first four years are 2006 to 2010, where you see that big dip between 2008 and 2009. And then uh, the second period was 2011 to 2017, where you see a dip between 2013 and 2014, right in the middle there. And then the last period was these past few years, um, 2020 to 2022. But by then, as you can see, while there was a little bit of a dip, we were already pretty low, so... Yeah, I mean, I, honestly, my personal hypothesis is I mean, they they cited or the the presenter cited mm -hmm. uh, a bunch of different factors, but one thing that they also mentioned was that around uh, twenty thirteen, uh, like uh, water metering came into effect. Mm -hmm. So previously there was just a flat rate for water, uh, but then around I think he said either twenty twelve or twenty thirteen they started metering the amount of water. So essentially, you get charged more the more water you used, and there's like different tiers. So like within uh, within tier one, there's like a certain rate, you know, if you like use enough to go into tier two, you get charged like another rate. So that to me is like the big lesson because you can clearly see like a delineation of like post-2013 and pre-2013. And the post-2013 is actually like relatively static. And so mm -hmm. my hypothesis is that 
all you need to do is actually just like change the incentives at the top. And then people will naturally find the ways that conserve water in the way, like to the extent that they want to conserve it. Like, like um, just tax water. Yeah. And then people will be like, oh, it's like now economically feasible to replace my lawn with something else. So I'm just going to do that. Or it's like the ROI on like a new shower head or a more efficient toilet is actually just financially worthwhile. Like I'm, I'm going to have to spend this money one way or the other. Mm-hmm. I'd rather spend it on a fixed cost thing that will last a long time rather than an ongoing expense expense, which may or may not increase year over year. I think you just touched upon the like fundamental power that like local governments and any government has when you need to like sway like culture change, you know, in the population, like incentives is everything. I mean, in, in business, like, you know, like if you need to hire like more competent employees, you just like you offer more money for positions. It's, you know, very important. Yeah, the, the most explicit example of this is like energy, right? We, um, I, I'm not sure where people live, but um, uh, there's like peak rates versus like off-peak rates versus like midday sort of rates. And the idea is that it's uh, kind of easiest and cheapest to generate and serve electricity at night. So um, it's, you know, it's kind of, there's an incentive to charge a cheaper rate there. So that people have an incentive to, you know, for example, if you have like an electric car, it's like charge it overnight, don't charge it between like 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. Um and you know, actually, one thing that was like, really funny is like I I didn't realize like how uh how good the smud rates are. I went to San Diego and like the rates are like atrocious. Uh, it was, I think their base rate was like higher than, uh the, it was like pretty close to the our peak rate in Folsom. So I think it was like twenty eight cents per kilowatt hour, and like our peak rate here is like thirty two cents per kilowatt hour, and their peak rate was like okay. seventy three cents per kilowatt hour. And I, honestly, I mean, it kind of worked. Like nobody that I saw was like running in air conditioning, despite like a lot of the houses actually having air conditioning. Uh, you know, uh, people just like used appliances less. Uh, there's like a more incentive for energy efficient appliances. Uh, you know, for example, using like heat pump dryers instead of uh, like a traditional dryer, which has like a heating coil. Um, so yeah, I don't, basically to reiterate McLean's point, like incentives matter a lot. And I, I would almost argue like they're the only thing that is worth spending a lot of time deliberating and tweaking um i think all these these other like long tail of things probably have a a very minute effect um if anything but i don't know that's just my take yeah water markets was something that we discussed a bit um in my graduate program and they've been shown to be very effective and efficient systems because you know as opposed to uh local government coming in and investing in more water efficient distribution systems like that takes a lot of time and effort and money whereas a water market you can kind of rely on people to self-regulate but i think one thing to raise here in the context of Folsom is we're a largely homogenous community in terms of what water usage is sure you got the key plant and a couple of businesses but by and large if it's not being sent downstream it's just being used for residential use so it gets a little bit interesting when you think about like on a state level uh, if you're having a water market for the entire state, do you charge for different uses the same? Like, for example, McLean brought up a lot of it is in farm use. And in particular, California is considered the breadbasket of not just the United States, but a lot of the world. And if the state values its agricultural sector so much, like it may consider continuing to subsidize those water rates for people in the agricultural sector. Yeah, Justin, I, really, really curious. Um, so, oh, sorry to cut you off, Darvish. Okay. Um, I was really like, I won't. I would like 
if, if you, we have time, I know we're spending a lot of time on this slide specifically, but I want to know a little bit more. Maybe the listeners would benefit from this as well about water markets, like really briefly, like what is a water market, you know, um, as compared to maybe like a different convention of like distributing water? Yeah, um, I mean, I think metering is uh, something that's easy to understand for a water market. Um, it's a lot like even your utilities, like you're just measuring the amount that you're using um, and using that as a basis to tax people, whether it be like on a city level, on an individual basis, um, the specifics of which you know are really just up to whatever entity is imposing the water market. Um, but beyond that, um, there's a lot of things to consider in terms of um, like what you consider the usage for, like what is fair, what is not. Um, you could just do a flat like, oh, so much water equals so much like to pay back. And that's the simplest version, but I think in practice, it doesn't necessarily happen a lot um, for reasons like I alluded to, like um, sometimes governments will consider certain uses more beneficial. So like if you're growing crops or food, then that's something that the government wants to encourage because you want to be able to feed people too. Um, so residential usually I think is something that's a little bit more common as a very homogenous tax essentially. Um, and um, then you can get onto also these kind of like how we have those contracts we covered in previous slides where you can have these large water districts and reservoir areas that use the water and exchange it to different regions as a form of like resource currency. Um, so um, that in and of itself could be a, a larger podcast episode talking about water districts and how the interplay of the Folsom Reservoir works with everything else. Um, but I think, I hope that's a little bit of a snapshot. No, thank you, Justin. Appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think one thing I wanted to mention is that uh, I actually do feel like the same logic probably would apply to agriculture. I think the primary difference is a political one. Uh, farmers can band together and like them boycotting something would be much more meaningful than like residents of Folsom, like not showering. You know what I mean? Like, like a, uh, I think people don't, I don't know about that. I, I think, I think my family would probably disagree with that statement. <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I, maybe we'd all get like sick of each other very quickly. Uh, but, um, but yeah, but basically like, I, I think that, you know, I, I'm, this is kind of like a side thing, but I, I'm, I'm very like pro labor in general, but I think it would behoove us to recognize that, um, if farmers go on strike, that's a really, really, really bad thing. Um, like we all starve to death, right? Like that's just the simple fact of it. So, but then again, on the other hand, like we've seen that things like drip irrigation work. And so I wonder how much water conservation there is to be had um, by actually increasing the price of water for farmers such that it is economically viable for them to use these methods, which are far, far more economically advantageous for them in the long run, given the higher water prices, than it is to uh, kind of just subsidize the water for the sake of short-term consistency in terms of uh, agricultural output. And I think also like something to keep in mind is that uh, a lot of the things that Californian farmers grow is exported elsewhere. So is it really in our best interest to use our finite resources to grow something that, you know, while it is contributing economic value, you know, in terms of like, you know, a bushel of wheat sold anywhere is, you know, th th that still contributes to GDP in, in one form or another. But I don't think, I don't think like the average Californian would be okay saying like, hey, we're getting metered. We're jumping through all these hoops, trying to cut our water usage. It, it would only be fair that whatever water we conserve stays in the state for purposes that are either useful to Californians or 
useful to the United States at large. But I will I just say on that, on that one point, though, you mentioned farmers. And a few years ago, the state um, did invest in a program to facilitate drip irrigation for farms. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it seems like if there is to be a water market, um, the farm industry is going to be kind of at the end of it because the state of California would rather invest in those infrastructure projects to conserve water um, before imposing the costs onto the farmers itself. So that kind of goes to show a lot of what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I guess I see what you're saying. And I, I think that does make sense as well. I, I think my issue is that uh, when you, when when the government essentially like acts as a single buyer of a lot of this stuff, um, I don't think you get the same kind of competitive forces that would make, that, that would offer a an array of products that different farmers might need to use for different purposes, right? So, you know, for example, if, if farmers had like a bottom-up incentive, there might be a different drip irrigation system that's way better for almond trees than it is for strawberries, than it is mm -hmm. for asparagus, than it is for like corn or something like that. So, but you know, whereas like if the state of California does it, they're going to look at it as like, well, we we want to uh, have an RFP for a reasonably sized contract that uh, you know such that let's let's kind of average out all of the differences across all of these different crops and things like that. And let's just try to pick one solution that is kind of like a one size fits all for all of them, because that would be like the most efficient use of our contract dollars. And that's the way that we would kind of get the le least amount of pushback from the state legislature and, you know, our constituents and things like that. So that that's my personal, I mean, I know I sound like a very much like a libertarian <laughs> when it comes to that, but um, yeah, so I, I'm definitely on the side of like water markets for agriculture, even though it would be a short-term growing pain um, because I, I don't think the, the, the solution that a lot of people propose is like, oh, let's just like stop growing like pistachios or something like that. But that feels like kind of equally as draconian from the- Well, that's the already market driven. Like people exactly, are buying yeah. pistachios because they make money off pistachios. So imposing a water rate, which is also a market solution, mm -hmm. like if they're still making money off pistachios, they're not going to change that. Well, I, I think people are arguing is that like the the only reason that pistachios and almonds are financially viable is that the, they're being artificially subsidized by the low water rates. And so if you mm -hmm. increase the water rates, then the like almonds would be too expensive to sell. Not many people would buy them. So then like people mm -hmm. would like rip out the, the trees. I, and and I, I guess the argument is also like, oh, let's just like shortcut that and just like ask the farmers to like rip out their almond trees. But I don't know, mm -hmm. that feels very like un-American somehow, like just imposing on a farmer, like what they can and can't grow. Um, that sort of just like sidesteps the whole like idea that a farmer has his own enterprise and land and his or her own enterprise and land and things like that so um but, but i don't know I, I see why the, that idea is popular you sort of see the acute issue of like hey here's this crop that takes a lot of water uh let's just not do that um but yeah it, it, i think it's important to keep stuff like this in context awesome well we're uh that fascinating sidetrack we got on there i i think it's i think it's an important topic we could have our entire own episode on this and honestly we might so we'll yeah. uh if yeah if, let's wrap it up here then yeah <laughs> But yeah, no, thank you for that, guys. Let's keep going. Um, yeah, I'll, I don't know that there was a lot of other stuff. Oh, yeah, this, this is kind of interesting. Uh, just water usage by month. Um, yeah, it was interesting how, you know, you, you see like year over year, like the, the fact that I think, yeah, this 2015 is like substantially lower, like almost half that of mm -hmm. 2013, uh, which suggests that like it's probably not any big infrastructure changes that are actually making this jump because like two years is not a sufficient time to yeah. implement a lot of stuff. 
Uh, so it's probably just usage patterns. Um, and then yeah. it's pretty tight after that. So it seems like maybe just trending on population growth. Yeah, there's kind of like an asymptote at the, at the bottom. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, water losses, this is kind of interesting. I think this is where like that eight to 10% uh, figure came from. I'm gonna gloss over this a little bit. Oh yeah, and reservoir capacity. Like, but this is uh, so this column is how much we use, and so I think the point here was that, you know, we we try to do our best to conserve water, and you know, people are naturally kind of uh, upset whenever the spillway opens. But in reality, we have, you know, we use a, an incredibly small fraction of the total water in the Folsom Reservoir, and so there's no reason to worry, even in the immediate future, even given like some you know climate issues that that might arise. Um, we are in pretty good shape. There, there's like no immediate reason to worry. I also think that last column is really encouraging for people oh, yeah. who may have that concern that the percentage of average annual outflow is under a percent year after year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Even in drought years. So like you, you can mm -hmm. see like even in like 2015, it's like still quite, I mean, it's low here. Or sorry, I should say like even in non-drought years, it's like only close to a percent. So it, it fluctuates a lot relatively like year over year. So, you know, mm -hmm. so you can say like, oh my God, from, you know, 0.92 to 0.72, that's a huge year over year change on a relative basis but it's not a big absolute change, all things considered. So um, yeah, I think that was like the last thing. I think they just sort of questioned back and forth, uh, but yeah, we, we can sort of wrap up this section here. Yeah, um, it, it feels like we can pretty much skip all the way to the bottom of the agenda at this yeah. point. Um, sure. we, we kind of already mentioned what happened in the middle, consent calendar, things mm -hmm. got passed. Um, the other two items were just very quick FYIs. Um, and then the last agenda item that was really interesting was the discussion of this community advisory council. Um, and uh, before handing it back over to you, Darvish, I'll just say that um, this was a, an agenda item request from a previous city council meeting and the city manager came prepared with a recommended list of things priorities and timeline and budget for creating an advisory council to essentially go through a lot of what the different topics have been covered, especially on this podcast, um, and decide where the city, city should be um, prioritizing its funds, its efforts, and doing so in about, I think they said like a six-month timeline yeah. um, with a small body of about 15 people. Yeah, so I'll, I'll kind of briefly go over um, some more details, uh, some points that were brought up. Um, and I'll try to keep the section short because we spent like a lot of time on the on the water stuff. Uh, but you know, naturally, if there's a question, we'll we'll just kind of like dive into it. So uh, the proposal from the city manager was essentially, uh, as Justin alluded to, like a council of about 15 people. There'd be kind of a, a like a chair and a vice chair. Or I forgot exactly how they phrase it, like like lead vice lead that sort of situation. Um, mm -hmm. And the idea would be to source opinions from the community. Uh, there were surveys that were put out earlier, and this is like one of the points of contention that came up later. Um, but the idea was to essentially have a, a committee of citizens and essentially have them play around with the different trade-offs that would have to be made in order to avoid the structural deficit and solve it in a really material long-term way. So essentially like uh, ordinary citizens could say like, okay, what if we, um, you know, one of the examples that was given like, oh, what if we cut library hours? You know, what effect would that people have? Uh, would people be open to that? Um, would it receive a lot of backlash? Um, you know, how much money would we actually save? And then where would that money be reallocated to? You know, would it be reallocated to firefighter hours and that would save on like overtime? So there's all these kind of like second, third order effects. And the city manager also mentioned like some interesting software, I guess that you can buy as like a kind of a yearly license, which allows you to perform all these like little sensitivity analyses um, in a systematic way, which I thought was kind of interesting. But she didn't mention any uh, specific software vendors. But um, I, I just thought that idea was kind of interesting and I'll definitely look into that a bit more. Um, 
because I'm sort of confused why that's not like standard. Like, mm -hmm. like why, why even have the uh, debates on some level if you could just pull up, like if you could just screen share and be like, oh, hey, let's just like type in like what would happen if we did this. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being like a bit facetious. Like, obviously I understand that like there's more to it than just the kind of like math of balancing the budget. Mm -hmm. um, but okay, so, so th those are kind of, the, that's the kind of broad contours of the committee. And essentially at the end, the committee would have some proposals of like, here's where we think you should cut or like, you know, here, like if we want to bring in more revenue, we should do like X, Y, Z. Uh, we based our results based on like these data points and this like feedback from the community. So the main contention was from uh, council member Aquino and her contention was essentially, uh, we're not going to learn anything additional from this committee or council uh, that we don't otherwise already know from presentations that the council has already gotten over the past year or multiple years and the survey results that have already come back. And so, you know, for example, one of the survey questions was like, you know, how would you kind of rank in order like the aspects of Folsom? And you know, I think number one was like parks and, uh, or like uh, safety. So, you know, police, firefighters, things like that. Uh, then the next was like parks and rec. And so council member Aquino's point was essentially like, wouldn't we just sort of go down that list until we can find something that we can cut? Like, you know, essentially start from the bottom and be like, okay, this is the lowest priority thing. This gets the first cut, second lowest, you know, next cut. And then eventually we'll like have balanced the budget and have preserved the aspects that community members kind of take the most seriously. And we would have had to do this. We as in the council uh, would have had to do this exercise anyway when the budget proposal comes. So what does it matter if this committee is doing it versus we're doing it? Eventually the box stops with us. And I think the, if I could sort of summarize the counter argument, so no one person made this, this counter argument, but this was from both uh, public comments as well as uh, Mayor uh, Rodrigo. Um, she essentially said, and you know, some of the public speakers essentially said that uh, this is, you know, the, the level of detail that the survey goes into is uh, not sort of sufficient enough to determine what kind of granular cuts that could be made. So just because the library is the lowest priority, maybe library hours are very high priority, but library selection is not a very high priority. Or there's other amenities that the library offers, like, hey, you know, the, the internet speeds don't need to be as fast, so we can maybe like renegotiate the contract with, or, the, or our internet service plan for, you know, some amount of the year. Uh, or maybe we could close on different days and that would like save a bit of money. So. Uh, I think that, that was one of the counter arguments is that like just having a kind of list of precedents is not enough. And also that people's stated preference is different from their revealed preference. Um, mm -hmm. This is something that's very evident in uh, social media. So a lot of the time that social media companies spend is understanding how users behave, not how they say they want to behave. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for example, uh, Meta might look at Instagram ads and say, you know, ask people like, oh, hey, what kind of ad do you want to see? And they'll probably, you know, or they might say something like, uh, you know, I want to see ads about, uh, I don't know, my, I have a pet and I want to see ads about dog food. But then in reality, when you observe their behavior, they actually click on ads for, um, I don't know, like Gucci handbags or something like that. Hmm. And so Meta would essentially say like, okay, they're saying one thing, but their behavior is actually indicating something else. And so I think in much a similar way, just because people say that like, hey, I, I value, um, you know, public safety a lot, it might be the case that if it really comes down to the wire, it's like either nobody gets paid or like something has to get cut. Maybe people would look at the budget and say, you know what, uh, I don't think we should hire this additional police officer. I know it would be kind of a struggle, but I think in the long run, this would be kind of worth the cost. And I think another counter argument that was made is essentially um, 
get, letting citizens of Folsom kind of get intimately familiar with the data would um, essentially make them more, it make any cuts or revenue changes more palatable to people. Because I think, um, and I, I'm honestly kind of a victim of this too. Sometimes it's easy to have a reductionist view of like, oh, why don't they just cut this? Or why don't they just increase this? You know, like what, what's the big deal? Like I would have done this if I were in that position. And so allowing people that opportunity to essentially say like, okay, this cut has these trade-offs, this sales tax increase has the, these trade-offs, uh, this program might increase revenue in this way, but you know, it's, it has like these risks associated with it. Um, the idea is like that, that would be uh, more palatable if something ever comes to a vote. And those uh, community members can essentially be like liaisons to the rest of their community and like their friends and their network of people to say like, hey, like I know I know this is a hard pill to swallow, but like I've been a part of these discussions. I really try to advocate for this. And like, this is the this is the best way forward that I can see based on all the information that I saw and like talking to the council members and things like that. So yeah, that, that's, that's kind of the end of my diatribe about that. Um, curious if you guys have any thoughts. I want to uh, actually just ask like a context leading question um, because I mean, personally, I'm very, very ignorant to like a lot of like budgetary stuff um, and, and even just like terms. Um, so I just want to ask like two questions. One, what is like, what is considered the structure deficit? And do we actually like have a number or, like what that deficit is for this year? Yeah, so I, I can explain a bit of that. So essentially, so there, there's no, um, so the council and the city manager are not actually allowed to pass a budget with a shortfall. Um, however, in the yearly budget, um, most years when when there's a most years there's like a bit of a surplus, and that's uh, put into um, something. I think it's called like the emergency reserve fund or something like that. Uh, and essentially, the idea is like it's like it's like a rainy day fund. It's like a little piggy bank that you put extra money into, and you know when something like COVID strikes or perhaps like the Great Recession, the idea is that you can you can kind of pull from that fund to make up for certain losses in the short term, with the idea that in the future you will replenish that fund. And so. Part of the issue is that we are not actually post-COVID, we are not replenishing that fund to the same level as some of our neighbors, including like Rancho Cordova and like the city of Sacramento. And um, I don't think they mentioned Eldorado Hills because that's like a different county, but I suspect Eldorado Hills is also in a similar position. Um, and so the 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 idea is that, uh, you know, this year we actually took a bit from, not, not that much, but a little bit from the emergency reserve funds for an ongoing expense like an extra police officer and I believe two community service officers to join the police department, which is like a very contentious thing. And people can go listen to uh, previous episodes if you want to learn more about that. Um, and so the, the uh, basically the city manager and her team have forecasted that if things continue at the rate that they do, meaning that uh, sales tax is relatively flat and property taxes are increasing at the rate that they are, um, we will actually have to draw more and more from that emergency reserve fund until the point at which we don't have an emergency reserve fund at all. And right. so I think right now we're at around 15 or 16%. And so the idea is that as the budget grows, the proportion that you need to take from that emergency reserve fund grows ever larger. So as your budget increases, for example, from you know 103 million to 115 million, um, if you have to take 3% of that, that 3% is gonna be much larger in the context of that reserve money that you had put away. Um, and that, that cliff is essentially coming in about like three to four years. So 
So basically, in, in three to four years, we will be at a point where if things are not like, if things are not cut, there will be no legal way to pass the budget. So something will have to be cut in order for like the next year's budget to be approved. And right now we're sort of like kicking the can down the road by saying like, oh, let's just like deal with this kind of, let's like take a bit from the reserve fund and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of figure this out later. And so the council, the, the whole point of this committee is to say like, hey, we, we got to figure this out now because three to four years is a relatively short amount of time in the grand scheme of things. Definitely is. No, thank you for that, Darvish. Um, yeah. Justin, I saw you pulled up the uh, some facts and figures here. You want to walk us through this? Yeah, so this is just um, underscoring some of what Darvesh was discussing um, and adding some numbers to it. So um, this year, for example, there was uh, essentially a $594,000 deficit that they had to address to balance the budget. Um, with here, it says that they're predicting by 2026, it'll be a multi-million dollar shortfall, um, which is relatively quick. And then one of the other points here that it's uh, noting as a large budget item is aging infrastructure that um, they have been putting off addressing because of these deficits. So um, as time only, you know, progresses, this problem's not going to get any better on its own. So um, that's additional budgetary pressure that is going to be a huge price tag if the city doesn't find a way to address sooner rather than later. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, no, I think I think that the both of your guys' descriptions of this like perfectly outlined like the critical the criticality of this like topic in general. Um, so like I'll stop bugging you guys. Let's talk about what happened, what was discussed. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I would say most of it was uh, those the back and forth about what the utility of this commission actually is. So I think there's some debate of like you know is is this like a superfluous thing, like do we just need to have this debate as uh, members of the city council? Like, why should we outsource this to the the public? And I think uh, the other contention was like, this is a lot of money. Uh, so I, I think the original proposal from the city manager was around $150,000 yeah. for, you know, what amounts to about like eight to 12 meetings. And so mm -hmm. people kind of look at that naturally and say like, okay, what, what could possibly cost tens of thousands of dollars per meeting? Um, and I think from the city manager's explanation, it was essentially a lot of uh, software licenses that are needed to do these sort of calculations. Uh, the Essentially, the opportunity cost for the uh, workers inside the city government to essentially use some of their time to provide data and figures and information and context to the committee to do their job, because that's taking time away from them from doing their like assigned duties. Um, so, yeah, and then I, I think... Justin, if I remember correctly, the amount was negotiated down to around like 75,000, but they sort of like pushed the committee making decision until later. Yeah. Um, so I'll just add one more thing on the budget side. Um, the initial proposal from the city manager that was discussed by the city council also included a facilitator for those meetings, which was highly recommended by the city manager. And that in and of itself could have costed like somewhere like 80K. Um, they're, it's not cheap to have a professional facilitator for a sequence of meetings that lasts half a year. Um, so I think that was one of the also early points of contention, whether or not there should be a facilitator. But yeah, um, they did end up deciding to um, bring that number down to 75K, but before actually even approving that plan, um, one of the things that Mayor Rodriguez talked about was um, essentially taking this working group that was going to be 
kind of a mix of professional citizens who have a lot of experience and various stakeholders and creating more of a citizens commission that was on the one hand cheaper and two a little bit more engaged with the at-large public um, and it kind of seemed like the way that they ended was they decided okay we're not going to decide on this proposal here we're going to push it back over to the city manager and the city to come back with a proposal for the citizens commission um, and uh, introducing that at a future um, city meeting so we'll probably be covering that sometime soon. Gotcha. Yeah, that, yeah, that's very interesting. I, I guess I'm kind of curious like why a facilitator is as expensive as it is, because ideally it shouldn't be their full-time job. Mm -hmm. Like they would probably be a facilitator for multiple things happening at different times of the year at different meetings and things like that. So yeah, I'm kind of curious why it's so expensive. Uh, I, I wonder if it's just a kind of the fulsome tax in a way, like we are, uh, we have pretty high like per capita income and things like that. So maybe that just like causes things to be inflated whenever Folsom asks for quotes for things. Um, I think there's that. a, there's a lot that could be said about the consultant class. Um, yes. And um, it's possible that that also came with some of the software that was mentioned. Maybe it's lumped in yeah. at the price, but um, I, I, it's hard to say um, what an impact that would have on the process would be. Professional professional facilitators are definitely super useful, especially when you're negotiating, trying to find mm -hmm. a compromise. But yeah. if it's a group of citizens that are all collectively working together, ideally very collaboratively already, mm -hmm. um, it is something that I feel like the city council could not necessarily consider for the sake of you know funds. Because it's ironic to be proposing this $150,000 budget item when their whole purpose is to address an existing large deficit. Yeah, yeah, I see. Yeah, the, the irony is definitely not not lost on on me, and I I doubt I doubt it's lost on the city council as well. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Like, what, what do you think about the prudence of this commission? And like, like, what are your thoughts? Putting aside the, uh, not putting aside, but like, I guess taking in the comments and um, arguments that were made on both sides. Yeah, I would say that the the main thing that I see here is the political lens. Um, and I think kind of what you were talking about earlier um, and having been somewhat in this position before, um, when you're forced to make substantive cuts that affect the livelihoods of people that you're representing, um, it's very easy for people to see that as, oh, you're taking away like my livelihood and you're picking other people over me, you're playing favorites. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's a little bit easier for the city to justify its decisions when it's like, hey, look, this was just a proposal that mm -hmm. came from average citizens. Um, and to an extent, I do think there's a lot of value in having that level of citizen input because yes, people can go to city council meetings like we've done in the past, but uh, whether or not everyone's gonna be able to be there at every meeting and whether or not every citizen actually pays that much attention beforehand to the city council and what their items are. Um, I think that's a little bit dubious. Um, so I think if they do get a balanced citizens advisory group, it is useful, especially if they could trim the budget down and get it to be rather cheap. Um, whether or not they're gonna come up with different priorities than the city council, um, I kind of doubt. Um, I feel like by and large, that survey that um, council member Aquino was talking about uh, was gonna be along the lines of what this council comes up with. That being said, that survey seems like it was um, addressed to people who have varying levels of information. Whereas mm -hmm. ideally through this process and the mutual education phase in the beginning, uh, these different people that are gonna be on this, this body uh, are gonna be more educated on the minutia of the issues and therefore hopefully would make a more informed decision. Yeah, yeah, that's... I, I agree, honestly, with with everything I said. I my only fear 
with this kind of approach is that it feels a little bit like rearranging rearranging chairs on the Titanic because I feel like the big elephant in the room is that 50% of the dollar spent are spent on two things, police officers and, and firefighters. And not a lot of that is capital expenditure. And, you know, to, to the fire department's credit, um, they did come under budget for like their most recent fire station. So it, it this is not to say that like, I think they are, you know, uh, like not financially sound or that they're like irresponsible with money. Um, but I think it would behoove us to understand the point of diminishing returns for quote unquote safety in Folsom that just throwing more police officers at a problem is not going to resolve the fundamental structural issues. Um, and I mean, to be fair, I, I think there are like organizations which are trying to address these issues. Like, you know, HART, H-A-R-T is but one example of this where they are actually trying to you know, provide temporary shelter, uh, provide uh, like medical care, uh, pathways to housing, all those sorts of things. Like those actually resolve these structural issues. I, I don't think that more police officers responding to complaints about the homeless is like actually moving the needle in, in a in a way. Like it, it, there's no inertia behind it, essentially. Like you're just gonna kind of run into the same problem over and over again. And with the firefighters, it's like, I, I guess one thing I don't understand is like, why why is there so much overtime? Like I, I was under the impression that firefighters work in these sort of like overlapping, you know, shifts like throughout the day. Um, so why are we like paying overtime? I mean, is it just that like we don't have a system for people to take over a job if it happens between shift changes and things like that? Like, like if so, I mean, is is this just some like weird, um, you know, uh, hours accounting issue that we can resolve to save a bunch of money like I, I i don't know i just don't i don't understand like where the the overtime actually comes from and how much of it is uh Folsom firefighters working for cal fire in which case like why is Folsom fronting the bill for that like why why isn't cal fire just fronting that bill and maybe we could like pay into some larger cal fire fund that amortizes this cost over a lot of firefighters and also like another thing that kind of i guess maybe grinds my gears a bit is that like we use a lot of like prison labor to fight the fires. So it's kind of like, yeah, I feel like you can't have it both ways. You you can't have this like literal like indentured servitude and then also have like people making like six figure salaries, taking up like a quarter of the budget. Like I, I, the, it seems to be like a square peg in a round hole type of situation. I, I don't know if that's like uncouth to say, hmm. but that, that feels I think like there's the like, the there's like, three or four different like podcast episodes we can do just yeah. out of these discussions alone i i think they're incredibly important um and increasingly relevant to like you know just like society as a whole like what how much policing is like necessary for a city of this size you know uh whatever else right what other characteristics to define like Folsom as a city um but i agree i i think that in personal finance, like one of the things that they tell you, and I think there's some parallels you can draw, obviously, personal finance, you know, governance, you know, like budget setting, very different things. But I think that the idea that when you want to make large, substantial changes in, let's say, reductions to your like personal expenditures, right? You know, the, the meme out there that exists is like, stop buying your avocado toast and your yeah. lattes, <laughs> right? But if we look at it, like by and large, like if you can reduce your like rent or mortgage payments, like you will be making such a bigger impact 
to your like, you know, your budget. And I think that's it's important to look at the biggest budget items as well, you know, when, you know, kind of considering like where can we make changes? And so I don't think it's I, I think it's an important topic like to discuss, you know, and, you know, and to discuss very responsibly too, because there's a lot of there's a lot of personal sentiment wrapped mm-hmm. up in the discussions of like policing and like, you know, safety and fire fighting mm-hmm. um, in general, um, but also just like budgeting. You know, and like how the cities like spend taxpayer dollars, because at the end of the day, you know, and for those who live in Folsom and but for anywhere like the money that you earn that is taxed is being spent on these things. And so, um, yeah, definitely, definitely a discussion. I want to get into more of that, but I think we should talk about that in a later episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I 100% agree. And and this would definitely be like a, a good place to to kind of like wrap the episode. If, if uh, I mean, we'll, we'll go around one more time. Yeah. Um, just kind of getting everyone's last thoughts. One thing I guess I wanted to say is that I think for me, this this issue has been top of mind for me, both on a, like a local and a federal level, which is that um, I am sort of afraid that there is a systematic mismatch between the political and fiscal incentives for a set of governments. Essentially, it's like, it's much, it's... Uh, way too politically easy to vote your constituency into bankruptcy at your own benefit. Meaning essentially like in the short term, everyone has a political incentive to hire an additional police officer, hire an additional community service officer, build an additional fire station, you know, know, build it faster, build it with more features, hire more firefighters, pay them more overtime. Um, But it's almost like everyone kind of I, I don't know. I'm just afraid like democracy sort of just like vote themselves into bankruptcy because um, everyone atomically has an incentive to like want more things, but there is sort of never an incentive to recognize the collective good and sacrifice something in the short term for this like long-term benefit. Or at least I, I think those discussions often get mired down in um, like wealth transfer and sort of like, I don't know, like the whole, the whole like left, right, like socialist, non-socialist debates, which I, I think are sort of beyond the point. Um, but uh, yeah, so that uh, that's why I brought it up in that context. And um, I'd be curious to, you know, if, if anyone, if any fans of the podcast have opinions on this, I would love to hear it. So yeah, I don't know. With that, I want to kind of wrap up, but uh, do you guys have any final thoughts? Um, yeah, I guess my last thing that I'll mention about the, uh, community priorities advisory committee um is i think it's also it's interesting because it feels like it's avoiding the elephant in the room which is sure it's focusing on ways that they can reduce spending this in the city but um one of the ongoing discussions that we've covered extensively throughout the podcast has been the idea of additional revenue for the city and even the city manager at the very beginning of this part of the agenda mentioned that oh there was a dip in sales tax that's really hurt city revenue um, and, you know, whether or not this body would end up considering something like a, oh, well, we want to continue all these services, so why don't we talk about instituting a sales tax hike? Um, feels like that could be a natural political vehicle for the city council, because if they were to do it on themselves, uh, probably wouldn't be too popular with people in Folsom. But um, I feel like that's kind of almost a parallel path here, um, where the city council is considering both revenue increases, or at least they need to be, um, alongside the idea of reductions and being able to close the deficit. Um, other than that, 
I, I very much agree with you, Darvish. I think it's a very interesting uh, discussion. Um, there's a lot that I could say about the the dynamics of the like the structure of our political system and how that plays into a lot of what you're saying um, with regards to incentives. Um, but uh, I think that's that's going to be all for me for this episode. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll talk about this offline or something. Uh, mm-hmm. and maybe it like matriculate into the podcast if it if it becomes relevant and stuff like that. How about you, McLean? Yeah, no, I I mean I think we're if, if if nothing else we've kind of talked about throughout this entire episode today is there's like so much we can get into and get like deeper on. Um, I think that discussing like the budget for me personally is like a kind of like a little passion of mine because I think it's, mm-hmm. it's for, I mean, personally, like, you know, it's like where most of my like sentiment and frankly, a lot of my like, Im- you know, immediate emotional negative sentiment, like immediately goes to where if like, you know, if I'm in, you know, Redmond and I see like something I just like don't like, but like, gosh, why am I like paying, you know, like crazy tax rates? And I think so. I, I want to continue to talk about like the budget um, in general, but I- I'm just so excited to like kind of dive into all these topics that we were like, you know, touching upon because they're, they're relevant, they're important. And I, you know, I'd love to see like some of the information and like, you know, explore those spaces a bit. So I don't know. I'm just feeling excited right now. Yeah. Same, same here. Um, and yeah, with that, uh, we'll we'll wrap it up. Uh, thanks, guys, for tuning in. Um, sorry for the slightly longer episode, but uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Uh, these are really important topics. We'll definitely follow up on both of these things in um, much more detail in, in future episodes as well. So thank you. Thank you, everyone.